Good morning, my name is uh, John Rauch. I'm the Family Discipleship Pastor here at Grace. Glad to be with you guys today as we continue this series called The Choice Is uh, Yours. And uh, I don't know, you probably have never heard of this, but uh, Greg Repogel back here is a good friend of mine. He's a pilot playing keys today in the main. And he asked me this week if I've ever heard of a spatial disorientation. And like the rest of you guys, I'd be like, I was like, no. Um, it's something that happens to pilots. Greg happens to be a pilot. He's never been to flight school. He just watches Top Gun a couple times a year, and he's good, he's good to go. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm sure he's a great pilot. But he was telling me about spatial disorientation. That's what happens sometimes to pilots when they're flying. If they're coming out of a turn or going into a turn, sometimes they might get the impression that their flight, their, their, their air, uh, airplane is not um, the right way, so they'll turn it back, but they're actually turning it now into a side, right? Because their, their balance, their equilibrium is sort of off. It's called spatial disorientation. I found this kind of quick article about it to help explain it. It's written for pilots. It says, when we take to the sky, we can be subject to motion, speed, forces, and variations in gravity for which our orientation system was not designed. This can lead to an incorrect, instinctual understanding of where we think we are, what direction we think we're moving, and how fast we think we're moving. That is, we can feel ourselves to be certain of our orientation and relative movement, but our actual orientation and movement may be very different. Now, if you're flying somewhere this week, don't worry, this is not going to happen to your pilot. But uh, spatial disorientation is more likely to occur at night in bad weather and when there is no visible horizon uh, to the pilot. Spatial disorientation, if not corrected, can lead to both loss of control of the flight uh, or controlled flight into terrain. The possibility of becoming spatially disoriented is hardwired into all humans. In fact, it is the proper functioning of our spatial orientation system which provides this illusion. And because this is a system that we have learned to trust... It's particularly difficult for some people, some pilots, in some circumstances to accept their orientation isn't what it appears to be. Despite, this, despite the capability, the accuracy, the reliability, and the flexibility of modern flight displays and instrumentation, pilots, pilots can still find themselves questioning what their aircraft is telling them, what their instruments are telling them, because their gut feeling is saying something else. Now, again, that doesn't happen very often, and the more that you fly, the less it happens to you. Uh, but that you understand how that can happen, right? You think you're kind of going this way. If you can't see the horizon and the distance, you think your plane is going one direction. In reality, you're sort of going another, and so you overcompensate, and you can turn it um, on its side like that. That can happen in life as well, right? Sometimes our gut feeling doesn't give us the right information, Sometimes our instincts are off. Sometimes our feelings uh, are hardwired to make poor choices. We're in this series called The Choice is Yours because we're trying to help us make better decisions when we're faced with choices. And just like pilots who are flying, our life navigation system, our feelings can fool us at times. There was a time in my life where this was very evident. One of the hardest phone calls I've ever had to make was to my dad from a police station. When I was a teenager, I was hanging out with some friends. Not bad friends, good people. Just like me, we had no compass for right and wrong. 
We were making decisions with our lives based upon what we thought was funny, what we thought was maybe accepted or cool by all of our peers at school, what we thought would uh, uh, get us respect or credibility. And so we were making like a lot of bad decisions in our lives. And and one particular Friday night, it got us into trouble. We weren't doing anything really horrible, but we were caught doing some mischief and we got a ride to the station. I can remember a lot of the details of that night. It sticks out into my mind. I can remember the look of the officer. I can remember the feeling of sitting in the back seat of the car. I can remember what I was wearing. I can remember the friends that were with me. And I can remember the moment I cleared my throat so I could call home late in the night. That event was pivotal in my life for many reasons. For many reasons. And that's probably why it sticks out so clearly and vividly to me. But it wasn't just about that night. There was a bunch of little things that had led up to it. You see, behavior isn't one simple act. Behavior is a pattern over time. And there were a lot of little choices that I had made along the way that had led me to that night, to that point in my life. It was all the choices to listen to my feelings of wanting to be accepted that led me to that night. It was all the choices to listen to my feelings of wanting to be respected that led me to that night. It was all the choices I made where I was led by my feelings instead of the source of truth. And I found myself in trouble because I had been led by my feelings. Have you ever been... In a situation like that, where you were led by your feelings, maybe you had to have a conversation, make a phone call, have a talk, because you had messed up, because you realized you were not in the place you wanted to be. Here's why we're talking about feelings today, because I think the answer to that question for all of you is yes. Yeah, John, I've done that before. I've been there before. And here's what I think. A lot of times we mess up. It's because we follow our feelings instead of what we know is right. Feelings are tricky things. So many times we're told just to go with our gut. And that's great if our gut is the Holy Spirit. But what if our gut is just us? What if it's our feelings, and they're confused. Here's what Scripture warns us about following our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So the Scripture says about my heart, about your heart, about our feelings. And for those of you who are thinking, well, that's not my heart, that's not my feelings. My heart doesn't deceive me. Well, then listen to Romans 3.10. Just be reminded of this. Verses, Romans 3.10 and 11, it says, There is no one who is righteous. Not even one. There is no one who seeks God. Without God intervening in your life or my life, guess what? Your heart is deceived. My feelings can be deceived. Maybe that surprises you, but if you really think about it, it shouldn't. I mean, we are naturally wired to be selfish, to what, to want what we want, to get what we want. 
And so we can convince ourselves that something is right. We can convince ourselves of anything, rationalize anything that we want to do if it gets us to the place that we want to be. And so we allow our hearts to be deceived. Our motives aren't usually pure when we're going after something that we want. Our hearts and our feelings can trick us into thinking something is better than it really is. Our hearts can be deceptive. How do you know if you're experiencing spatial disorientation in your life? The answer is, you probably are. Or you probably will at some point. Your heart, my heart, is deceptive. There's a well-known story in the Bible that gives us a great picture of this. Turn to Genesis chapter 25. Ushers will have Bibles for you. You'll want to follow along today. Genesis chapter 25 is one of my favorite stories in the scripture. A great example of what we're talking about today. But let's go back for a moment. We're at the very first book in the Bible, in Genesis. And help me, I want to set up the passage for you. See, in the beginning, God had created a magnificent paradise. Everything was good. Adam and Eve had it made. They had everything that they needed. They had a close relationship with God. They had a magnificent uh, place where they lived. And we were created to live like that too in a close relationship with God in in a magnificent paradise. And that's why this world makes us feel so restless. As good as things were for Adam and Eve, they still wanted more. And so they broke God's rule. And when God's rule was broken, the world was broken. So Adam and Eve were banished from the magnificent garden of Eden and they were separated from God. And since sin had entered the world and broken it, that sin was then passed down from generation to generation, keeping everyone separated from God. Sin ruined everything. Man's relationship with God was ruined. Paradise was ruined. In fact, things got so bad that God decided to start over with a clean slate and sent a flood and started over with a man named Noah and his family. God had always had a plan despite sin, God's love for the people of the world reigned on. And so he had a plan to form a people group to show his great love to and eventually bring a rescuer who would lead us into an even more magnificent paradise one day. As Noah's family grew and grew, people formed into tribes according to their languages and all the people of all the people of all the tribes in all the world, he chose one man named Abram to give a special promise to. And here's his promise to God in Genesis 12. I'll read it for you and then we'll get into our text today, Genesis 25. But in Genesis 12, here's what God says to Abraham, verses 2 and 3. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. You will be a blessing to others and I will bless those who bless you. I'll put a curse on anyone who calls down a curse on you and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. And so of all the people in the world, God chose Abraham to be the one who through his family, he would send a rescuer into our world. Pretty incredible promise to Abram. Pretty incredible promise for his family. And so Abraham had a son named Isaac. And this great promise would be fulfilled through him and his descendants. We're going to read in Genesis 25 today about Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Would you stand up and read with me? Genesis 25 
verses 19 to 26. Those seven verses we'll read together. Here we go. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer. His wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Thanks, you can have a seat. Thanks for reading along today. God was going to write an incredible story for Esau to be a major play in the firstborn of Isaac, right? The first grandson of Abraham. He would use Esau and his family to make a significant mark. He had already determined that. And so God was going to deliver on his promise, but it wasn't going to be an easy road. There was some testing. God tested Isaac's faith. Isaac had gotten this promise from his father, handed to him that God would bless the world through his descendants. And yet Isaac found himself married without any children. How was this going to happen? We know that because we look at the clues of scripture, right? When you're reading, you want to kind of look for the clues. They cue you into what's happening. And when we take a look at verse 21, we see that Isaac was how old? Uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 20. How old was Isaac when he was married? 40 years old. And then verse 26, he was how old when the boys were born? 60. So, okay, think about that. How long then was he and his wife waiting for children to come? 20 years. 20 years. It's a long time. A lot of Christmases, right? A long time. Of course, Christmas wasn't there back then. But a long time. Finally, God comes through on his promise and their family's expecting. And now it's twins, two boys. Many of you guys have had hard pregnancies through your times, through your time on earth. So you can relate to Rebecca who was having a hard pregnancy. We know that because at the end, towards the end of the final trimester, right, the babies, the scripture says, are jostling in her. They're kicking each other, fighting so much that she actually goes to the Lord to say, what's going on here, right? The night before our oldest daughter, Ellie, was born, who was our first um, child, um, Tara and I were at, had a small group meeting at our house, Friends were there. I remember because one of the uh, ladies in our group asked, how are you feeling, Tara? Do you feel like tonight's going to be the night? You know, and she's like, no, I I feel great. I don't feel anything at all. In fact, we felt so comfortable and and sort of energetic. We actually went out and saw a movie late at night, something we cannot do anymore with children at home. So we went out, we saw a late movie. We were kind of rolling into bed around midnight. 
And uh, I was totally almost asleep. And that's an important detail in the story that I was about out of it because I wasn't at my best. So we're rolling out, we're rolling into bed and I'm falling asleep, drifting, drifting into dreamland, okay? And Tara elbows me and says, John, I think I feel something. And here's my response. Wake me if you need me for anything. <laughs> if your wife is pregnant, learn from my misdeeds, right? But I was tired. Like I said, I was falling asleep. And so that's the only excuse that I can think of for why I responded that way. She says, no, I'm serious. Like, I think I feel something. So, of course, we get up and start to count and figure out time, you know, between the contractions. That's what Rebecca was feeling, only very, 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 very stronger, very much stronger. It was so much that she goes to talk to the Lord about it and says, what's happening? And, and here's this verse, this answer from the Lord in verse 23 has huge implications. There are two nations in her womb. Now we have boys, and this week, in fact, I had to separate them a couple of times, right? And I had brothers, and I was separated from them several times. But as far as I know, my boys are not planning to be two separate nations at war with each other, which is what she had. And so pretty incredible what she's feeling inside of her. And then there's part of the prophecy that says the older will serve the younger one. And that's significant, as we're going to see later. Esau comes out first in verse 25. He's all red and hairy. So he gets the name rough one or passionate one. And he's going to live up to that description. He's going to live up to that description. Jacob comes next. And uh, his name means heel holder. It's a picture of him holding Esau back, which he will also live up to later. So the boys grow up in verse 27, it says. They grew up and Esau becomes a skillful hunter a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We're going to get into what happens next. And if you know the story, you, you know what happens next. But I want to kind of pause there because Esau gets a really bad rap for what he does. And, and that's why we're looking at his life, in fact, because we can learn from him on how to not listen to our feelings, right? We're going to see in a moment that Esau is incredibly deceived by his feelings, by his um, sense of his gut and what he should do and how he should act. He's deceived by that. But I want to take a look and help us understand Esau first. Did you catch what it said in verse 28 that Isaac loved Esau and that Rebekah loved Jacob? Folks, that's a dysfunctional family. When there's favorites like that, that's painful to children and has life-altering consequences as we're going to see. But as I was reading this story this week, it really, really hit me uh, I had read it before, so I can't say for the first time, but it sort of caught me off here. I mean, there's, there's family with some mega competition going on between the brothers because of the parents. And, and it really helped me, though, why Isaac loved Esau. Did you catch why he loved him? It says in verse 28, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. 
He loved his son because of what he could hunt for him. That's why he loved him. Folks, that's incredibly tough to live up or down to that expectation. I mean, that's crazy. But because of it, Esau's entire identity is wrapped up in him being the wild, passionate, reckless adventurer. In fact, he probably believed that if he wasn't that way, then his dad would not love him. And so you can see why he is so passionate and reckless and wild. Because that was how he had to be to gain his father's approval. That's hard. Have you ever been in a place where you've lived up or down to someone else's expectations? We understand that because we've gone through it. But that is the very reason, listen, don't miss this, that is the very reason that Esau shouldn't have listened to his feelings. Because his feeling that he had to live that way to gain approval was not accurate. Esau had an inaccurate picture of the world and himself. And that's the reason that you and I can't trust our feelings either. Because our feelings deceive us. What we've learned about ourselves, what we may have learned about the world and the way it works is not necessarily true. Because we don't take into account the way that God views us, the way that God sees us, and what he says is true about us. Here's what we know about our feelings that make them so deceptive. We know that uh, our feelings first only come from our perspective or point of view. My feelings come from my point of view. This is why I feel a certain way. This is why I think I have to do this. This is why I think this is so important to me. It's because they're from my point of view. And guess what? My point of view might not be the right point of view. It might not be accurate. Second, our feelings are so deceptive because they can change so quickly. They can change so quickly. I might think so strongly about something, talk to a friend two days later, he asks me about it, and I have a totally different view on it now. A totally different take on the situation that we talked about just two days before. Because my feelings can fluctuate and change so quickly, right? Based upon uh, one thing happening or, or one conversation, getting a different perspective. Our feelings change so quickly. They're deceptive and, and, and unable uh, to be trusted because they are heavenly, third, heavenly influenced, heavily influenced by our past experiences. We kind of we read into situations what has happened to us in the past. Our current work situations are affected by our past work situations. Our, our current family that we're in is affected by our past family that we were part of. And we read into what people are going to do, expectations that we place on them based upon things that have happened to us in the past. And it may not be an accurate read on that boss. 
You may not have an accurate read on your spouse. You may not have an accurate read on how your kids are going to respond. Or you, you may not have an accurate read on your neighbors. Because just because something happened in the past doesn't mean that they're going to respond that way or treat you the same way. And our feelings are so deceptive and are, are not worthy to be trusted because they can fluctuate based upon what seems like randomness. Things like the weather or construction or our toddler's mood that morning. Our feelings on matters fluctuate based upon things that really aren't critical to life, but they just change the way we feel about things. Would you agree that our feelings are not the best barometer of reality? That our feelings aren't always trustworthy? That's why you and I must choose to not be led by our feelings. We can choose to not be led by our feelings, but instead by what we know is right. So here's where Esau's feelings are going to betray him. Pick up the story in verse 29. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country. He was famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, Well, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank. He got up and he left. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau isn't thinking very clearly, right, in this story. He's not thinking very clearly at all. He listens to his passionate, rough feelings, which at this moment is one particular feeling, and it's hunger. He's hungry. Everything about this interaction between these two brothers, everything about their personalities comes through in this conversation. Everything. Esau says words like, quick, I'm famished, I'm about to die right? And that screams his personality of recklessness, adventuresome, and and passionate. Quick, I'm about to die. Even the description in verse 34 that shows how he ate, those four rapid-fire verbs that the author uses, he ate, he drank, he got up, and he left. That was Esau. Act first, right? Think later. He acted on impulse, on feeling, feeling, feeling. He doesn't even know what Jacob is making. I find that interesting. He says, give me some of that red stew, whatever that is, just some of that red stew that you're making. Just give me some of that. He trades his birthright for something he he doesn't even know what it is. All he knows is that he's hungry and he's supposed to be the impetuous, passionate, rough one in the family, and so that's who he is. Jacob also lives up to his name of being the footholder. He, he has heard the stories of the prophecy. He knows what's supposed to come to him. But like his family line, like his grandfather, specifically Abraham, it's hard for him to wait on God's time. And so he has been scheming 
for a chance to make it happen for himself. He's not going to wait to let God fulfill his promise. He has to be in control. And so he is fighting these feelings of manipulating the situation to gain favor. Right? He also was led by his feelings, Jacob was. His feelings of impatience. His feelings of needing control. His feelings of making sure that things uh, happened the way that he wanted them to. The way that he thought they should. He had probably grown up watching his brother's recklessness and he was ready for the opportunity when it came. Esau was the firstborn which carried some incredible perks in the culture of that day. The birthright was granted to the oldest son in the family and it was extremely significant. You and I, we don't quite understand it because we don't have anything quite like it today. But with the birthright came three really important things. First, if you had the birthright, you got a double portion of the inheritance from the rest of your family, the rest of your brothers. Twice as much money as everybody else. That's pretty incredible. So you got money. If you had the birthright, you got to be the judge of the family after the parents are gone. You became the next patriarch in the family. When there was a big decision to be made, each brother or family member would share their thoughts. But then it was the one with the birthright who had the final choice, the final say. And, and again, we can't quite understand that because we move away from our family. My, I have a brother, uh, a law and a sister who live in Florida. I have two brothers who live in Pennsylvania and I live here. But it wasn't that way. Families lived together and depended on each other in this culture. And so to be the one who was in charge and was able to tell your brothers, no, here's what we're going to do. You can imagine how difficult that might be. For the other brothers. And so it was a big deal that, that Esau had that birthright to be the patriarch. Now we're talking about money and power. And there was this third element as well of a blessing. You had a special blessing that was given to you. And with this family, it was an incredible blessing because of God's promises to Abraham. And so Esau was literally trading away money, power, and eternal blessing. That's what he did. And when you think about it that way, when you understand what he was trading, and when you know the story of this family and the promises that God had made, which had obviously been told to Esau and to Jacob from the time that they were boys, there's an obvious question that you ask yourself. Every time I read this story, every time I come across it in my Bible reading and I come through Genesis and I read this story, and the question that you have to ask yourself that I ask myself is this. Who trades away all of that for a bowl of stew? Don't you think about that? When you read that, you're like, what was he doing? Who, who trades away a birthright for a bowl of stew? I mean, who does that sort of thing? Who would allow themselves to be led by their feelings like that? Now, I, I want to pause for a moment, take a time out, and, and I want to do something. I want to use an illustration. So I'd like you guys, everyone here, to just raise your hand up high. Okay, if you mind doing that. If you're in the lane, would you please raise your hand up high? I'll tell you when to put it down. Just keep, keep it up for a moment, okay? And I'll let you know when to, to put it down. Let me ask my question again that I just asked. Who would trade their birthright for a bowl of stew? I mean, who does that sort of thing? Who would allow themselves to be led by their feelings like that? The answer is, you're right. 
You would. I might. We all would do that. I appreciate your candidness this morning. You can put your hands down. (laughs) The honesty in these rooms is amazing. You might do that. In fact, maybe this week you did. Maybe I did. If you have ever met a temporary need because you wanted or needed something right now, but in the process you hurt yourself in the long term, you may be a lot like Jacob or Esau. What do I mean by that? Let me ask you some questions to help you figure out if your feelings may be leading you. I want to ask you some questions. I just want you to think. I just want you to think about these things. You'll never get to write all this down, so don't try. Have you ever bought something that you didn't have the cash for because your feelings said you need it now? Have you ever gone too far physically in a relationship because you gave in to their pressure and didn't want to have the feeling of being alone? Have you ever committed to do something? You said yes to something even though you know your family can't handle one more thing because you couldn't deal with the feeling of disappointing someone? or the feeling of not living up to every other family's busy schedules? Have you ever lost your cool to meet your your short-term feeling of frustration, but hurt the relationship long-term and lost the chance to speak into that person's life in the future? Have you ever given in to the feeling to seek easy self-gratification through pornography rather than putting in the effort it takes to build real intimacy with a spouse? Have you ever been swayed by what culture says is right or moral rather than the word of God because you can't stand the feeling of not fitting in or because it makes sense to your feelings? Have you ever been willing to negotiate almost anything for what you felt you needed in a moment? Feelings are tricky things. And they make us do crazy stuff when we listen to them and are led by them. This is where we need the body of Christ. This is where we can come alongside each other and help each other see the potential blind spots that you might not see in yourself. That you might not know, or maybe you do know, but you refuse to recognize them or see that they're there. That's what Esau and Jacob did. Like them, you and I have had things that have happened to us that have caused our minds, our feelings to be shaped in a way that might not be accurate. And so our feelings, our heart, the scripture says, deceives us. Would you seek the Lord and others to help you sort out what is really true about yourself 
and your feelings and what isn't. Esau is such a sad story. In Hebrews, we read again about him where it says that he begged through tears to go back and change what had been done, but it couldn't be changed. Our feelings deceive us. So how do we choose to not be led by our feelings? Turn to the book of Hebrews, since I mentioned it, which is the very, very back of the Bible. Sometimes really hard to find. Don't feel ashamed to look it up. Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to look at just a couple of verses here to give us some insight. Hopefully you have been convinced that your feelings cannot be trusted and that your heart is deceptive like the scripture says. And here's what Hebrews 12, 1 to 4 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let me pause for a moment. Hebrews 11 describes all these great men and women of faith from the, from the Bible who uh, have gone on now into heaven and form this cloud of witnesses, right? Watching down on us and encouraging us to finish our races, uh, saying that we can do it. They're a model to us. And not only Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, but even those that we have known um, that have gone on to heaven, form this cloud of witnesses. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and throw off the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Or what it could say, so that you will not grow weary and listen to your feelings. Hebrews 12 gives us insight on how to not be led by our feelings. Because your feelings sway you back and forth, but Jesus is steady. Your feelings deceive you, but Jesus is truth. And your feelings mislead, but Jesus will lead you the right way. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses that we can look to for how to live our lives or how not to live our lives in the case of Jacob and Esau. Where we can learn from their mistakes. We are to throw off everything that is holding us back, getting rid of that sin that is holding us back from all that Christ meant for you or me to be. And we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Do you know that pilots are able to reorient themselves when they kind of have that equilibrium issue 
when they are able to catch the horizon in front of them, they are then able to see where they were incorrect and get themselves straightened out again. And they are told to trust their instruments until they do, until they get reoriented the right way. It's no different for you and I. We are to trust the instrument that God has given us for what is truth. Despite what our feelings tell us is truth, we must check it against what God has given us as an instrument for navigating our lives. This word right here, this book, the Bible, is the only source of truth that will help us to navigate the world that we're in. And once we trust our instruments, eventually then we are able to get our eyes back onto Jesus, who is the one that will get our lives reoriented to what is right and where we have gone wrong. And I love what Hebrews 12 says about him, that he scorned the shame of the cross. That for the joy that was set before him, he, he scorned the shame. In other words, he didn't let his feelings dictate what he did. He was not led by his feelings. He was able to push that off. He scorned it. He said, I don't care if I feel this way. This is where I'm going. He was not led by his feelings. Really quickly, three things that you and I can do. One, your greatest need is to find a focal point on Christ rather than what I feel now. That's your greatest need. is to find that focal point on Christ, to, to fix your eyes on him and to let him be what guides you. You take the steps towards him rather than letting your feelings guide you to a different direction. And second, you lean into your church family. You lean into those believers that are around you, that have wisdom to help you find help, to help you gain wisdom. That cloud of witnesses, Hebrews calls them. You lean into your church family because listen, you and I, our lives are not as unique as we think they are. Sometimes we get ourselves believing that nobody else can understand what I am facing. No one else has ever faced what I'm facing. And we allow ourselves to think that we are more special than we really are. And listen, God has given us a body here and there is someone who has walked where you're walking that can help carry you and lead you through to the other side. Who can give you wisdom that you can lean into. And if you start going to, to godly, wise people and they're telling you the same thing, one person says it, another person says it, another person says it, guess what? You got to listen to that. Even if your feelings, even if you feel like, that's not what I want to do. Man, but if God's people are telling you something, that should wake you up to say, maybe I'm wrong. And that's the third thing is to be teachable and willing to learn a new way of living. Maybe, maybe you're off. Maybe you're spatially disoriented. And what you're thinking about life and the way you're viewing your situation, the way you're viewing your relationships, the way you're viewing your life, it may not be accurate. Check it against scripture. Check it against those who you know will lovingly tell you the truth. 
God sent people into my life. After that night, I had to call my dad from the police station. God sent people into my life to to show me a different way. It was a few months later that I found myself on my knees in the front of a sports camp, giving my heart to Jesus Christ. I can still remember that phone call so clearly. It's such a pivotal moment etched in my soul when I called my dad. Because my life at that moment had been heading one way, but God turned me around and put my life in another direction. You and I can choose to not listen to our feelings. You and I can choose to not be led by our feelings. There is a different way. Lord, we uh, turn to you. And God, as we close today, I know that there are times where I still get caught up in how I feel about things and I allow my emotions to control me. I allow my situation and my circumstances to be what it is that determines how I think about things and how I view things. And God, I know that in these rooms there are many that are in the same place. And so God, today I pray that there would be a spirit of repentance here. Lord Jesus, I pray that there would be a spirit of, uh, of just wanting to lay aside whatever it is that's entangling us. Whatever those feelings are that are confusing us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just come down and reign in this room and in these rooms, Lord, and on our campus. And even those who are watching online, we pray that you would reign. Holy Spirit, your counsel, your comfort, and your conviction on our hearts. Holy Spirit, we open ourselves to you. We confess that we have allowed ourselves to be led by other things instead of by you. God, I pray that you would put us on a new path today. I pray, Lord, that there would be courage, courage to admit where we've been wrong. Courage to admit where we need to change. Courage to admit where or we've listened to the enemy, where we have given him a foothold and maybe even something that we thought was good or was right has now turned into something that's taken us away from you and from what's best. Lord, I pray that we would not be led by our feelings. I pray that we would give in and surrender to the one who was never led by his feelings, who was only led by you. We pray, Jesus, that you would come alongside like a good brother, put your arm around us and pick us up and walk with us. We need your grace. In your name we pray, amen.